All right, hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to another episode of Jazz's Backstage Pass. So just want to let you know, uh, this conversation was originally taken from a video recording we did with bassist Jimmy Haslip that aired on our website on April 27th, 2020. Uh, it's available on our website if you'd like to watch it. Otherwise, keep on listening. You do you, podcast listeners. All right. Well, hello, everybody, and happy Monday to you. Welcome to another episode of The Jazz is Daily Brunch. It's everything you love about brunch, minus the hour-long wait time and having to split the check 11 ways. Uh, I am your host, Brian Zimmerman, digital content editor for Jazz is Magazine, and I sincerely thank you for joining me today. Uh, my guest woke up very early to be with us today uh, because he's on the West Coast, so we owe him a deep debt of gratitude, but uh, he's a very special guest, and I know you're going to enjoy the conversation. You know him from Yellow Jackets. You know him from playing with Alan Holdsworth and Virgil Donati and Joe Vanelli. He is bassist Jimmy Haslip, and he will be here in a minute to talk about his amazing career and to talk all things bass. Uh, but first, I'd like to thank some of this episode's sponsors. They include Concord Jazz, great label out of the West Coast. Uh, so the big news for them is over the weekend, they released Ella 100 live at the Apollo. The album is out now, and it, of course, celebrates Ella Fitzgerald, the first lady of song. Um, it was recorded live at the Apollo in Harlem and was produced by eight-time Grammy and Emmy Award recipient and former Ella Fitzgerald drummer, Greg Field. Uh, and it features a host of amazing performances by the likes of Andrew Day, uh, Lettucey, Liz Wright, Cassandra Wilson, Monica Mancini, and so many more. Plus, it was hosted by Grammy Award winner Patty Austin and the multi-Tony Award-nominated actor and singer David Allen Greer. Again, this album is out right now. It was featured in our 10 albums you need to know for the month. And get this, we will actually be chatting with Greg Field, the producer of this amazing disc. Tonight at 5 p.m. Eastern, he's going to join us to talk about what it was like to play with Ella Fitzgerald and putting this amazing concert together. So be there for a very special uh, second course of Jazz's Daily Brunch. Again, that's 5 p.m. Eastern. You can learn more about this great disc at Concord.com. And again, stick around 5 p.m. Eastern for Greg. This episode is also brought to you by Blue Sound. So Blue Sound is an award-winning wireless high-res sound system that lets you play music in any and every room throughout your home. All you do is you choose your favorite music from your favorite streaming service, connect it uh, through the free Blue OS app on your smartphone, tablet, or desktop computer, and boom, that's it. You link it up to these sound systems and getting the kind of crisp, detailed sound that only an audiophile-grade system can deliver has never been easier. So some products that Jazz's viewers might enjoy. The Node 2i wireless multi-room high-res streamer. That's the one where you can kind of take it from room to room and enjoy music in every room of your house. And the Pulse Soundbar 2i wireless streaming multi-room sound system. The soundbar is very cool. It sounds great. You can put it on your you know, media system or under your TV. It's a really nice look. Uh, you can learn more about these Blue Sound products at bluesound.com or on our website. We put together a Blue Sound Buyer's Guide uh, at jazzes.com. We also will be highlighting some products in our upcoming summer 2020 issue, which is all about jazz fusion. If you subscribe to the magazine now, you will be enrolled to receive a copy come June. Anyway, before we bring Jimmy Haslip onto the program, I just want to remind people watching at home 
on Facebook or on YouTube, feel free to drop a line, comment, say, hey, ask a question. We will get to it on air at the end of the show. Um, so yeah, you can participate in this brunch just as much as Jimmy and I. So without further ado, let's go ahead and welcome our very special guest, Jimmy Haslip. Hey, man. Hey, how's it going? Pretty good, man. How you doing? Uh, doing okay. Uh, you know, just dealing with uh, this lockdown, but yeah, man. It's all okay. It's um, we're staying safe here and uh, working from home. Good, good, good. Yeah, my first question is always usually, you know, what have you been up to during the lockdown? How are you keeping yourself sane, busy? What are you listening to? I understand uh, you're working on some projects. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm actually working on about 13 projects right now uh, oh, and right. various stages of completion. And uh, even a, a few things uh, that I'm just consulting on. Um, I've been A&Ring a small label out of Las Vegas called Blue Canoe Records. Yeah, man. Uh, for the last three years or so, um, I've um, brought in uh, at least uh, 18 or so releases uh, with that label, including a couple of trio projects that I... Um, help put together um, uh, one with Scott Kinsey and Gergo Borlai called Our Trio. And uh, that came out last September. And uh, last November was uh, a project entitled Elemental, which featured Atmaro Ruiz, a great pianist from Caracas, Venezuela, and Jimmy Branley. Um, oh, okay. Really great drummer from Cuba, both living here in Los Angeles. And, um, we uh, got to do some live playing before all this happened, and that was great. We were looking forward to doing some more here in 2020, but it doesn't look like that's going to take place. So uh, just hunkering down and uh, working on all these other projects, quite a few things. Um, I'm still helping to promote a project that uh, – came out also last September that I co-produced with Jeff Lorber. Um, it was a collaborative project with uh, guitarist Mike Stern. Right. And um, <clears throat> a few different drummers, uh, Dave Weckl, Gary Novak, and uh, Vinny Kaliuta. Oof. <laughs> That's going to be exciting, man. Yeah, I'll plug even farther because, you know, our upcoming issue uh, for June is all about fusion. And in our sampler disc, we've got quite a few Blue Canoe tracks on there. Um, and That's they're fantastic. great, man. Thank they're you. They're great, dude. They're they're all smoking. So, again, if you sign up to uh, to uh, for a subscription today, you will receive that issue. You'll get the sampler and you get to hear some of this Blue Canoe material, man, because it is great. Uh, Jimmy, I know you're a sports fan and, you know, that must be tough. I guess the silver lining in all this is, you know, if the Knicks aren't playing, they can't lose. That's so, right. <laughs> and that goes for the Jets. Well, <laughs> that goes for the Jets, too. And uh, we'll throw in the New York Giants. Exactly. Exactly. I'm fans okay. of all the New York teams. But, um, yeah, well, I, you know, I love watching sports. Uh, I played a lot of sports growing up. So Yeah, man. In uh, the Bronx. You know, well, yeah, I, grew, I was born there. Yep. Know, and I grew, grew up uh, out on Long Island. That's right. That's right. And I understand you were a trumpet player first before you switched to bass. That's correct. Yeah. I started playing trumpet when I was like in the fourth grade and uh, played all the way through just about until I was a senior in high school. 
Um, and then, a, uh, go ahead. It's a common theme, man, because we had Mark Egan on the show yesterday. Right. He was a trumpet player mm -hmm. who became a bass player. He was telling us Steve Swallow was a trumpet player who became a bass player. Um, I dabble in both and fail miserably at both. But, uh, <laughs> so it's nice to know this is a trend. Um, but the you know the the, the cool be. thing about you you know is that you were left-handed, and uh, when you started playing bass. All you had was a right-handed bass. Flipped it over. You play it upside down. That's unfortunately what I do. <laughs> um. <laughs> well, I was just wondering because you know, it, does it change the way looking back at it now? You know, growing up, you were probably just thinking, "I got to. This is the way I play this thing." Looking back on it now, did that change the way you understood how you approached the bass and how you play? Because I'm thinking of someone like Hendrix, right, who played left hand, but he restrung. Right. So he, did he had, that. yeah, he had the low note on top, but because of the way the instrument was positioned, it went farther. The actual string went farther from bridge to neck, so we could get some real nice bends. You know, it kind of changed the way he played a little bit. Yes, and I think it does. Okay, so I, you know, without getting too technical, but we can get a little technical. Um, how do you think it changes the way you just think about bass and soloing and constructing lines? You know, uh, I don't think about that so much, except that uh, in the last few years, I've been working on a lot of improvisational types of things, and I've I found all this, um, all these different ways I could play things that I now look at and realize that it would be very difficult for a right-handed player to approach things this way. Um, I'm actually considering putting a little master class together for that. I, I've, I, I've done a master class for an online educational site called My Master Class, so I'm mm. working on a little curriculum right now Oh, nice. Uh, that would be geared to bass players that play the way I do. So uh, there's quite a few, actually. I've run across quite a few left-handed upside-down players over yeah. the last 40 years that I've been wow, playing. Uh, actually, I've been playing for 51 years. But um, You know, for self-taught guys, self-taught lefties, I'm sure that's the way it yeah, is. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Yeah. Uh, in in certain respects, I mean, I I do regret at times that I didn't, <laughs> uh, try to um, approach it in a conventional fashion. Um, and of course, early on, I got quite a bit of criticism from different people, uh, and that actually probably motivated me to work. Oh, hard. oh, so teachers were saying you should probably try to correct this. Y yeah, actually, yeah. I had teachers that wanted me to completely abandon what I was doing and learn how to play right-handed, um, which these teachers I, I got together with when I had already been playing for like three years. So by then I already kind of felt comfortable uh, with the little bit that I, that I had going, but I, I did feel comfortable and I, and I was very young. I was, mm -hmm. uh, I started when I was 13 years old. So when I was 16 and I finally got a, went to a teacher and they, they started rattling uh, the way I was playing. I, I kind of let, let that go. And I just continued on uh, the way I was um, pursuing this. Uh, I, I felt like, you know, I didn't feel like it was, 
um, going to be my career. So I just mm. trying to have a good time and have right. fun, play right. music. And what initially, you know, like what was so transfixing about the bass? Why? What pulled you to the bass? Yeah, I, th I think my dad had something to do with that in a big way because he, I remember going uh, to some department store to buy a, a, a hi-fi at one point and okay. he kept saying, I, I want to make sure that the bass is really prominent because he liked, he liked oh, it. Oh, okay. So I think uh, he was uh, he was influencing that early on in, in my life when I was listening to music with, with my parents, um, which uh, my household uh, included my older brother and an aunt that was living with us. So the house was always filled with, with all different kinds of music. And, um, and especially when my dad put on music, he used to crank up the bass. And uh, I just remember locking into that and thinking that was really cool. And I remember also early on hearing some like salsa bands live. Uh, in New York City uh, with my parents <clears throat> and uh, I was just transfixed on the like the baby bass and right uh, the little it, electric upright yeah a little electric upright was awesome yeah <laughs> so that those were those were motivating factors and I think uh, at one point uh, I, I thought about it and and what pushed me over the edge was in uh, in I guess it was seventh grade, uh, a bunch of guys came up to me and were putting a band together for to do some summer parties, you know, pool parties and stuff. Yeah. And they uh, they said, you know, we don't have a bass player. We know you play music because I was playing trumpet in the in the concert band in school. And uh, I said, would you would you buy a bass and play bass with us? And I thought, hey, that's kind of fun. So right. I talked to my dad. My dad was really into it. We bought a little bass for like 50 bucks and uh, I learned like 30 tunes or something to that effect. And uh, nice, I, I think the band only played 10 tunes, but we <laughs> we keep playing them over and over again at those pool parties and we, we had a lot of fun. So, cool, man. Yeah, the line that launched a thousand bassist careers. Hey, man, we don't have a bass player. <laughs> cool. I want to talk about some other early formative stuff. I came across one thing on your website, uh, Captain Cook. Oh, my God. I did yeah. some digging on you, man. Tell me about yeah. Captain Cook. This was a band you performed in very early on? Yeah, uh, that was actually the first real professional band that I played with out of high school. Um, I was attending college and, uh, it was very surreal. Uh, I wasn't really locking into the whole deal. Uh, but I, I decided I should go check it out at least. So I did a semester, um, a, a small, uh, two year college on Long Island. It's in Westbury, Nassau Community College. And while I was going there, you know, I, I, I was commuting back and forth. Um, and I, I had a little apartment um, that I was staying in with some friends. And I was sort of playing bass just as a hobby at that point. But then I went to an audition. A friend of mine turned me on to uh, an audition. They were looking for a bass player. 
so I, I decided to go and, and, um, all the guys were, were older than I was, but that was cool. Uh, but when I left here, I figured, uh, I was too green to get the gig, but I actually ended up getting the gig. Mm. And I had to learn this huge repertoire of tunes and then play five shows a night for like six to seven nights a week. Wow. And, um, just shedding. That's your 10,000 hours. And, and hanging with these guys that were already um, professional guys. And, and uh, I was learning a lot. And I just felt like this this was a calling. So I finished the semester at Nassau Community College. And I just uh, I didn't show up to, to the next semester. And I continued doing these gigs with this band for about a year or so. Nice. And uh, I decided at that point that that's where I was going. I was going to that work. planted the seed, planted the seed heavily, and I hung out with. Uh, in fact, the guitar player and I still stay in touch. Oh wow, uh, dude! Even the drummer, I've been in touch with the drummer from that band, um, uh, Doug Dean, and the guitar player's name is Angela Ficarra. They both live. Uh, I think Doug lives out in Long Island still, and. Uh, Angelo lives up in Kingston. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and Angelo was also very important. He, he started teaching me a lot of tunes and um, he was way ahead of anything I was thinking about. So it was quite an education. Nice, man. Hang with those guys. Yeah. The other, the other group I wanted to ask you about was the short lived blackjack uh, <laughs> with Michael. This is a hard rock group with Michael Bolton singing. Yeah, uh, it was a rock band. It was a rock band. Mm -hmm. You guys opened for some big names, right? Peter Frampton. Yeah, uh, I think we opened for a few other. I'm trying to think of anybody else we opened up for. Was it Ozzy? I think I came. Did you open for That's, Ozzy? I don't remember Ozzy, but you know, it could have been like five. Whoever does, yeah. Five. <laughs> <laughs> you know, bands like that, but um, yeah, I think the big. The big uh, uh, sort of break for, for the band was to open for Peter Frampton. We did wow. a bunch of dates with him. And we had done a record in uh, Miami in Criteria with Tom Dowd. Wow. How was Michael Bolton as a hard rock singer? Oh, I think it was great. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's got a really big voice. Yes, he does. Um, and he and the guitar player, a guy named Bruce Kulik, who later went on to play with Kiss, Okay. Uh, they were the they were the songwriters. Um, I was brought into the, this whole situation out of the blue, basically. Um, again, this band looking for a bass player, and I think a guy that was handling business for them was a lawyer named Steve Weiss, um, who I I had uh, uh, some contact with him when I was playing with this um, uh, guitarist named April Lawton who was in a band called Ramatam at one time with Mitch Mitchell and Mike Panera. Oh, nice. And she, she was from Long Island and uh, played in her band and she was being represented by this guy, Steve Weiss. So there was a connection and when he was working with what became the blackjack uh, and they were looking for a bass player, he contacted me and they flew me out to New York. I was living here in LA and, um, uh, we did a showcase for Polygram, got a deal, and ended up doing two records together and a short tour. 
Right on, man. So if you want to hear Jimmy playing rock and Michael Bolton singing. I simultaneously was on the road with Dave Mason and Fred. Oh, nice. Yeah. Oh, cool, oh, man. Doing that for almost 11 months. I wow. Wow. And this was getting right into the time where you formed the band within a band that would become Yellow Jackets. <laughs> uh, so walk me back to that moment because I know Yellow Jackets started out of a Robin Ford you know, Robin Ford is an amazing guitarist. Um, yes. No more in the blues vein now. Um, but back then was doing a ton of stuff. Grew out of a recording session for a Robin Ford album. What was it Inside? Uh, what was the name of that album? The Inside Story. The Inside Story. Right. So was he just calling on cats that he knew? Just he to, did. To he, called, he called one cat that he knew, and that was Russell Ferrante. Okay. That's where I met Russ. Um, and that was around 78. 1978, right. something around there. But I actually met Robin in 77. Okay. Um, I guess towards the end of 1977, I was finishing a tour with Flora Purim and Ayerto. And Robin came to the gig in LA. We played a couple of nights at the Roxy. And um, he was at the gig because his one of his roommates was our road manager. So I guess he got a free ticket, came down. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, there was a lot of people hanging out because Flora and Ayerto were um, doing a lot of things. They were producing records with yeah. George Duke and, you know. Connected to I, everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, Stanley Clark, Alfonso Johnson were at the gig, uh, which was, uh, that was a, a pretty crazy moment for me to be standing in front of those guys playing music. <clears throat> but um, I met Robin after one of the shows, and then he mentioned that he was going to be working on a record. Mm -hmm. So, um, And he had a keyboard player coming down from the Bay Area, so he wanted to get together with me, and that started the, the whole okay. deal with the Yellow Jackets. You know? Nice. Yeah, so that first session, you know, with Robin, you, Russell, Ricky – I mean, he was playing with Flora Pureman and uh, oh, okay. So that was that connection too, that right? Right. Connection, yeah. Gotcha. With that chemistry, man, did you know right away in this session for Robin that you had a groove going? You know, well, we did. We did feel pretty good about it, and uh, Robin was, uh, I think, really happy with having the four of us playing together, um, and. Uh, you know, he had some cool tunes that he had been working on. <clears throat> Russ also wrote a bunch of tunes on that record. And uh, Robin at the time hooked up with, I thought, an interesting producer, uh, Steve Cropper, oh. uh, <clears throat> was the producer sure. of that record who, you know, wrote Midnight Hour with Will Yeah, an old uh, Muscle Shores guy, right? Uh, he actually came... That's possible, but I, I, I what I remember about him was that he was the guitar player in Booker T and the MGs. Right, right. And the Blues Brothers band, wasn't he? And he was in the Blues Brothers, <laughs> right. yeah, later. Yeah. Um, yeah, with with the famous, uh, all the famous guys, Duck Dunn on right. bass and, uh, you know, all of the New York horn section. Um, you know, really great. To, to meet Steve and Steve was uh, over the moon about this quartet. So mm. <clears throat> we, we went into the studio for like a week or maybe. And uh, 
recorded all the music for the inside story and that was that started the whole thread uh which later became the yellow jacket yeah i have to also give credit to um robin's manager at the time who then became our manager for 20 years uh, a guy named gary borman okay Uh, yeah, because I understand they wanted Robin to do some more vocal stuff. You know, Robin, come this direction, try doing some vocal stuff. And he really wanted to lay into this instrumental thing he had going. He did, but he took a stab at the vocal. Yeah, nice, good I, voice. I, yeah. I spent a day or two in the studio. <laughs> so it's funny how things connect, but I spent a day, a day or two in the studio with Robin um, with a different bunch of guys, uh, Billy Payne and Richie Hayward from Little Feet. Oh, nice. And we cut a whole bunch of tunes with that group. And we cut a whole bunch of tunes with Russ and Ricky as well. <clears throat> but that record never came out. That's unfortunate. Oh, Good man. Show. Well, you got to dig that up. I, I have no clue where that might be somewhere in the archives at Electra Asylum, wherever that. Right. So, uh, but that's, that's what happened with that. And then when that got shelved, uh, the, at right at the same time, Gary Borman kind of um, uh, hooked up this whole scenario of us making a demo, which ended up on Tommy LaPuma's desk right. at Warner's, and he signed us uh, to do a record. And we became, at that time, we became the Yellow Jackets. And as the story goes, you didn't really have a name for the group. No, no. You apparently had a list. And we had an ongoing uh, list, yeah. Yeah. Do you remember any of the would have, could have been names from that list? I, because as Russell tells the story, it was your list, man. (laughs) I'd have to really dig (laughs) for that information, but obviously, one of the names on the list was Yellow Jackets. And I believe Tommy LaPuma was the one that gravitated towards that, thought that was an interesting name for the quartet. And that's the, that the rest is history. We, we ended up being called the Yellow Jackets and their art department did a interesting job to, to make a nice album cover. Yep. And we have, used to have albums and uh, <laughs> that was, that was quite an experience. I had just come home from being on the road 11 months with Dave Mason and doing the second blackjack record when I went into the studio to do the first Yellow Jackets record. So there was a lot going on. I also, right around that time had uh, spent a few days with Gino and Joe and Ross Vanelli and worked on a record called brother to brother. So okay. all that stuff was going, going on. on at once on top of the fact that I also did squeezed in a, a short tour with Tom Scott and Steve Kahn. Nice. That's right. Got Ross Ferrante on the gig. And then we went out on, did a bunch of gigs with that band. Um, a drummer named Ron Aston also joined us. So, yeah, no, I mean, you've always been busy, man, and lots you know, swirling around. Yeah. Exactly. Well, and that was kind of what was so cool about this era, um, you know. And you had a lot of overlap because the music was just so good during the seventies from every genre. Um, which is why <laughs> the fusion was so good. By the way, people are reminding me on Facebook. You know, Steve Cropper, Memphis, Stax Records. Duh, Brian. there you go. Come on, Brian. <laughs> Um, but and yeah, man. Totally, yeah. totally. <laughs> um, 
And Jim, yeah, you know, what I love about Yellow Jackets and, and the discography is that, you know, there's obviously so much consistency in style from record to record. But as the personnel change, you are also able to adapt, you know, and evolve little by little. And I'm, I'm wondering about the first big evolution, which would have been, you know, bringing in Mark Russo mm. and going from a guitar led ensemble to a saxophone led ensemble. Did that change the orchestration? That did it change the way you thought about, you know, composing these tunes, arranging these tunes? Yeah, uh, quite a bit, actually. And <clears throat> I think, <clears throat> well, it sort of just happened. Uh, mm. I was also working a little with a, a great guitar player, actually, and vocalist Michael Cimbello, mm. who had a hit at the time called Maniac. And he wanted to do some gigs to promote that record. Uh, so he put a band together with uh, Russ Ferrante on keyboards, his brother, Danny Cimbello, also on keyboards, uh, Vinnie Colliuta on drums and myself on bass. And he brought in the Tower Power Horn section. So, and he also had his wife singing backgrounds with some, uh, and that's Cruz. Cimbello, who used to sing with uh, Sergio Mendez, and then a singer that I ended up producing eight records for um, and worked on a bunch of other records, uh, Marilyn Scott. Okay, right. Oh, <laughs> oh wonderful. So, yeah. yeah, Marilyn sang with, with Tower of Power at one point. That's right, that's right. Backgrounds on some great records like Oakland Stroke and Urban Renewal. Um, but... Uh, we all knew each other and we had a blast. We just did a few gigs with that band. And it just so happened that the uh, the lead alto player in the Tower Power Horns at the time was a guy named Mark Russo, who had taken Lenny Pickett's place. Right. Lenny had left. Right. And Mark came and sat in with us. And uh, we just thought that that would be an interesting change for the band. And Mark had a beautiful sound you know, a seriously soulful saxophone player and, uh, yeah, really great guy. I'm still in touch with him. Uh, you know, and I've been following his career with the Doobie brothers. So, um, <clears throat> great guy. I miss playing with him. Actually, he, he was really, uh, very strong and dynamic and just played totally. some very interesting stuff so anyway that became the band and we <clears throat> did a couple of records with that band with ricky lawson <clears throat> excuse me and um and then ricky ended up heading out to go uh, on a long tour and mark suggested a drummer to just come in and sub uh and that was a guy named william kennedy and that changed the whole sound of the band. What did like he bring sound-wise? Well, he he had, you know, it's it's a a lot. That's a lot to talk about right there. Because um, what Will did essentially was really change the whole direction of the the band. We mm. got more into a polyrhythmic kind of concept and. This is getting technical, but hey, uh, man, that's cool. Pop jazz theory, our audience really enjoys. Okay, yeah. but we um, and and that motivated you know like Russ and I to like start looking at 
ethnic music in a big uh, way. Of course, right. we were big fans of Weather Report, so that was already kind of a, a motivation. Uh, but once Will got in, in the band, we started listening to a lot of African music. Uh, music, of course, we were interested in uh, from South America. And, um, you know, it brought in, you know, a little more of the orchestral thing as well. We, we just started experimenting because we had this drummer now that, that kind of opened the door for all that. So, so the first record we did with Will was <laughs> completely different than anything we had done prior to that, which was a record called Four Corners. Right. Which is a testament to your versatility, you know. And I know... <laughs> Will had also had some strong, some strong straight ahead chops as well, and that too, yeah, yeah. And Ricky was, you know, Ricky was from Detroit, and he had Ricky had the pocket of doom, serious <laughs> funk drummer, and yeah. uh, you know, so that's where, you know, we started with Robin, right? Was with that, you know, and and then it just kind of gravitated once we started making these changes. Um, uh, you know, things just started opening up in, in, uh, in a very positive way, I think. Uh, yeah. That's my opinion, but... Uh, totally, man. Totally. And then, then we did uh, this rash of records with Will, and then uh, in the course of that, uh, Mark Russo left, and, and I had met Bob Mincer several times because I... I had uh, spent some time with Jaco Pastorius, and mm. I went to see the Word of Mouth bands several times, and I actually met Bob during that time in the mid mid seventies. Yeah. So, I see. And then I, I'll just bring this up. It's kind of off the wall, but uh, we love that man. <laughs> I think I believe this is the where we were at. Um, uh, the Yellow Jackets were doing a concert um, in Aruba. It's Aruba okay. Jazz Festival. And we had a couple of nights off, I think. And Russ and I decided to go out into this, like, hot tub. <laughs> a swimming pool. So we just, like, plopped in there. And it was that, that was pretty great, you know, being in Aruba and this beautiful island and being in a hot tub uh, for a minute because we had jumped in the ocean as well okay uh and all of a sudden bob mincer showed up and he was in the hot tub with us and it was like wow bob how's it going and he happened to just be there <laughs> doing a gig with michael franks okay uh and it was just like a one-off thing or maybe he did a few things the chances man so we got into a really great conversation, I remember, in that hot tub. I don't remember exactly what it was about, but we made a connection. Uh, and then I ran into him a few other times in some, like, you know, strange places like Boulder, Colorado, in a lobby of a hotel. And So when Mark left, like, he popped into my head. Like, why don't we just call Bob Minter? You know? That was the universe, man, talking to you. Yeah. So we called him, and... The funny, the real funny thing was we had a, like the last few gigs we were doing with Mark at the Blue Note in New York. Uh -huh. And uh, so we, it was, I think, opening night or, you know, Tuesday night or Wednesday night, one of the first nights. 
and we finished the first set and Bob was going to come to the gig to listen to the band live. You know, oh, we had talked okay. about some possibly doing something together, a record, basically. We weren't soliciting him to join the band. We just wanted <laughs> him to maybe do a record with us. Okay. Um, and we Casual. thought, again, we thought uh, this would change the voice because he's a tenor player. Yep. Uh, as opposed to an alto. From a big band background, really from a straight ahead jazz background. Yeah. So he, uh, we finished the first set and the blue note caught on fire. What? <laughs> and oh, no. uh, <laughs> we, we were evacuated onto the street in front of the oh. blue note with plumes of smoke coming out of the club <laughs> and fire engines. And Bob shows up like, what the hell? <laughs> said wow the place caught on fire so no second show <laughs> oh man so we just went out for a cup of coffee and uh talked about the possibility of working together and one thing led to another and we sent him some music and uh he was i think compelled to to do the project and we also brought in a few other interesting elements we had just met a guy named vince mendoza oh wow and he did we ended up having him do three arrangements with a yeah uh, chamber extraordinary or, arranger composer he's with uh in germany now right uh, uh he's he's home oh okay now, but he still does things i believe with the metropole orchestra right and, and the wdr the vdr right orchestra in um in cologne <clears throat> which we we did a bunch of shows with Vince with both of those orchestras at one time, and that was with with Bob. Um, but uh, but that's how I'll stop there because this could go on for for a long time. But that's how that whole transition actually came about. We ended up doing a record called Greenhouse with Bob, and Vince was involved, chamber orchestra. Um, we brought in Alex Acuna to play some percussion and we flew in an engineer that we had worked with prior from uh, Oslo, Norway, who did like over 400 ECM records with Manfred wow. Eicher, a guy named Jan-Erik Kunschag. Um, great right. engineer. From ECM, yeah. Uh, yeah, from ECM. And uh, he engineered the Greenhouse record in LA. Nice. And we will get to because you worked again with vince on your arc your solo your leader album right and right that from from greenhouse uh that seed kind of was planted we were on grp at that time uh our original deal was with atlantic jazz but atlantic bought grp and then basically made grp their like jazz department you right literary label yeah during that time is what it was sure so uh, we ended up on GRP, and we um, we had an eight-record deal with Atlantic. So we had done four records for Atlantic, um, and then ended up doing four records for. I'm sorry, it wasn't Atlantic. It was uh, MCA, MCA Jazz. Um, so we did the four records for MCA Jazz, and then four four more records for GRP. Right. And with a project like ARC, you know, were was there a part of you that was like, I want to do things that I couldn't necessarily do with Yellow Jackets? You know? Well, yeah. The, I, I had to 
put my thinking cap on about that because I didn't want to. I didn't want to try to emulate anything that I was doing with the jackets. I wanted to try to find a different voice for right. for this body of work. And one thing that popped in almost immediately was my Latin background. Um, right. And my my dad uh, always nudging me to to have try to have the Yellow Jackets do a Latin record. <laughs> Which I said that, that uh, to my dad that it was a democratic kind of uh, process, and I couldn't just jam in a whole project like that. It would have to be maybe a tune or two that would have that influence. But we, you know, we weren't um, necessarily looking to do a complete Latin. I, I would have loved to have done that with the jackets, but that's not something that we were motivated to do at the time. We were right we had a little more eclectic kind of palette. So, so that allowed me to kind of focus a little more on that end. Okay. Uh, and I took it a step further with the follow-up solo record. Uh, it's called red heat. Red heat. Yeah. Which I'm re-releasing uh, this summer. Oh, on, very cool. On Blue canoe. <laughs> Blue canoe. There you go. Yeah, Cause it's, no, it's nowhere to be found at this point. And oh, I do own it. I that's own awesome, it. man. Uh, and I'm also going to re-release the record to follow that. Uh, uh, that's a record I, um, I did for my daughter. Uh, that's called Nightfall. So both of those are going to be released to, simultaneously this summer. On Blue Canoe. All right, excellent. Something to look forward to. Um, I'm looking forward to it. Jimmy, you know, you, you mentioned you've played with everybody. You're a very busy guy. There's some key collaborations that I want to ask about right now. Um, one being uh, working with Donald Fagan on Shades, who right. wrote. So he wrote the title tune for the album Shades. How, what was that process? Did he just send in this tune to you guys, or was it more collaborative? Was it? Were you in the studio recording with Donald, or I was. That oh, okay, <laughs> so you <laughs> I, got to I, witness that. Well, I have to thank uh, uh, also a big um, shout out to Gary Katz. Um, Gary Katz. I met him doing a record he got to produce um, was a singer songwriter named James house. Okay. Um, who I now believe is doing more like country rock kind of stuff or country ish kind of stuff. I've been in touch with him. It's been a while, but I've been in touch with him. Uh, and this was in the early eighties and Gary Borman, I have to thank him too. Cause he, he was managing James and the, Gary, I think, um, uh, recommended me to play on this record. And so I ended up playing bass on this record that Gary Katz produced. And in doing that, Gary and I connected, and then he started hiring me to do a lot of things that he was producing. And obviously, I was thrilled because I was a big fan of Steely Dan, and he produced, like, you know, all the Steely Dan records, I think, right. all the way through Gaucho um, right. from the beginning. Uh, so uh, I was blown away by the whole thing. And Gary was hiring me to do a lot of sessions for different records. Uh, Diana Ross record, um, a group called Eye to Eye that he produced. Um, uh 
you know, there was a number of other things that came about. Uh, Rose, Rosie Vela, I don't know if you're familiar with her, but she did a record for A&M. Okay. And that was a great, that was a great experience because I got to be in the studio for a pretty good chunk of time. And the band was Donald Fagan on keyboards, uh, Walter Becker on guitar. Wow. Uh, um, and, uh, Jim Keltner on drums and myself uh, and a few other people joined in on that, but that was the core band. And then Rosie played some keyboard stuff and sang and uh, we did it here in LA. Um, I just re I recall this uh, drum programmer that was around uh, named Jimmy Braylauer who okay. did a lot of session work. Uh, and also remembers, but very interesting guitar player was in a band that I actually liked. Uh, so I was blown away. He was on the system. Um, it was a band called The Call. <laughs> and he was the lead guitar player in that band. And they, they brought him in to play on some tin. Okay. So, so I, I ended up doing a lot of sessions with Donald. Oh, and okay. Uh, I even, at one point, Donald hired me to play on some music for a movie he scored called Bright Lights, Big City. Oh, right. The, the uh, book adaptation. Michael J. Fox was, I think, the star. Yes. And um, I remember doing that session in New York, just me and Donald. And I think during that time, um, I, I hung with Donald a little bit, and I... I I actually asked him at one point because we were getting ready to do a record, uh, which was which ended up being Shades, and I just thought I'd ask. And I said, "Donald, do you have any tunes?" <laughs> <laughs> and he said, "Yeah, I, I got tunes." So I think he gave me a cassette with okay. some tunes on it. I I came home and listened to him, and I found this tune that. I think was had a different title, um, but I thought it was a, just a working title. And Russ actually came up with the title of the of the entire record, which was Shades. Right. And then we decided that we were going to call Donald's tune Shades. Title tune. I think we should have <laughs> asked him first. <laughs> but I don't Whoops. think he it. Uh, I think he he did ask me at one point. That wasn't the name. I think he said that wasn't the name of my tune. <laughs> well, but, it's ours now, Donald. But it, yeah, that's the way it went. Yeah. And, uh, we recorded it. And the crazy thing was that the, that tune ended up being the bonus track for the Japanese release. And oh, really? The title track of the record. <laughs> I, that I didn't get. That was a, that was a record company decision. And yeah. It's kind of shaking my head going well what just happened here you know but um regardless uh we were thrilled to be able to have the opportunity to record a donald fagan song on a jackets record totally now being that it wasn't his album how was he in the studio you know because his own stuff he well he didn't play it. on it at all right okay he gave the tune and we we just ran with it nice and ross played all the keyboards i would have loved to have had him on the tune that would have been that would have been uh, fantastic, but but that that's not the way it worked. And he was in New York, we were here, 
uh, and we just caught the tune and sent it to him. And that's when he said, that wasn't really the name of my tune. <laughs> nice. But nice. thanks for recording it. And I think, uh, I think it's part of their, we're not part of the Steely Dan family tree. Because totally. Because it has an unmistakable Dan vibe, you know? It, it did. But with hoping, the yellow jacket spin on it. I was hoping to continue that on some level. It's just that, didn't, you know, it didn't happen. But um, uh, but I, I did do some more sessions with him. And I love working with Donald. Uh, I love working with Walter as well. I, I ended up even doing some things with Walter as a producer. Uh, like a whole week in the studio with Ricky Lee Jones. Um, and Walter was the producer with um, um, Roger Nickel, engineer. Uh, really great band, but we didn't, this particular band didn't make it on the record. It was a record called Flying Cowboys. Um, we ended up on the cutting room floor. Um, uh, I won't go into detail, <laughs> but um, but that's what happened with that. But it was a fun week because I got to for a whole week play with uh, um, Neil Larson and Buzzy Feeton. Cool. I ended up playing with with them in their band. I did some recording with them, and I was kind of an unofficial member of the Larson Feeton band or Full Moon, which they were also known as. And uh, two different drummers played on that. S- week uh rick morata and peter erskine right and uh and paulina the costa was on percussion so it was a really great session with with walter producing i mean what that's that's not a bad quite a dream team man yeah yeah the other um another big collaboration i wanted to ask you about you know you've played with him a lot you know is the great alan holtzworth um yeah. and you know your buddy Robin Ford has called Alan Holdsworth the John Coltrane of guitar. And again, not to get too technical, but not, not to get technical either. What was so special about Alan's playing? You know, what was he doing that just nobody else could do? It's, it's almost hard to put into words. Um, he just approached the instrument in such a unique fashion, uh, that, you know, I think anybody has difficulty explaining <laughs> yeah. um, his approach. But uh, bottom line is he changed, he completely changed what the guitar does. <laughs> uh, and uh, the way he heard harmony was, you know, was spiritual. Um, it, it took on... Uh, well, it had a personality that was, you know, un- unworldly. Uh, I mean, if that, no, I get it. Transcendent. Kind of words you know, had, when he would play, it was transcendent. Yeah, it was transcending. In fact, I had a brief conversation with Jimmy Johnson, who I, my favorite rhythm section, by the way, uh, my very favorite rhythm section, who did the the bulk of the the work with with Alan was Jimmy Johnson and. Chad Wackerman. Mm, that's right. Uh, I just, it, I, and that's, you asked me earlier a little bit about what I listened to, and those are the kinds of things I listen to. I'll go back in the archives and I'll listen to a record um, 
uh, like uh, uh, maybe uh, Sand, although the, the, that would, didn't feature that rhythm section on the whole record. I think Vinnie Colaiuta was also on that record. But I just, I love that rhythm section. And there's individual songs that I, I have a whole collection. I have like an Alan Hallsworth collection of songs that I have on my phone that I'll, oh, nice, man. that okay. I listen to. Every now and then. Yeah. Yeah. That has different rhythm sections, you know, like Gary Husband. Sure. Uh, I was a big fan of his. Um, and I got to play with Gary and Alan. I did a tour with them, uh, a trio tour with, with that group. That was ungodly. <laughs> uh, ungodly at the same time. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, I had to keep pinching myself. Am I really here doing this? Uh, it's, you know, it took me, so it's so inspiring to play with those guys. I can't even describe it, you know, um, uh, but uh, I was fortunate to, to play with Alan in a variety of of ensembles. So yeah. the first one was the quartet with Alan Pasqua and Chad Wackerman, which was awesome. And and we basically tributed uh, the uh, Tony Williams' New Lifetime. So we got to play a lot of that music, plus some original composition of Alan's of the two Alans. Uh, and Alan wrote the title track of the record that we put out just called blues for tony hmm. um and i just had the greatest experience playing in that band um well i mean the music you made with him was just outstanding man and uh, <laughs> and i got to i got to work with him right before he passed yeah. away um i brought him in on i've been producing these records by a pretty serious composer from Bremen, Germany named Michael Schmidt. He goes by MSM Schmidt. I've now produced three records for him and I'm in the middle of, that's one of my 12 records I'm working okay. on now. Um, and so on the last record, which is entitled Life, I brought Alan Hallsworth in on two tracks. Um, and uh, one track was with Dave Weckl and another one was with Virgil Donati. So. Wow, and it, so those must have been some of his last recordings. You know, I believe I believe yeah. they were. I mean, there's other things that I think have recently come out that 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 are being touted as yeah his last recordings. I I, I don't know what his last recordings were, but but I did get to see him a, a few months hmm. before he passed, passed. and. Uh, got to hang out with him and work on these couple of tracks with him, nice. which was a honorable thing. And I, you know, I think about him all the yeah, time. Yeah, absolutely. So. A guitar legend, man. He will be missed. Well, Hey, Jimmy, we're in the last 10 minutes here. Okay. So we have got a ton of questions on social media that uh, I'm hoping we can get to in the last 10 minutes here. People have been dropping it, saying hello, um, all sorts of stuff. But hey, Anthony Walker, uh, I recognize Anthony. Hey, thanks for tuning in again, man. He wants to know, can you discuss how you and Jeff Lorber started your partnership uh, these last few years? Thanks for the question, Anthony. Okay, I'll try to make it quick. Uh, but uh, originally I met Jeff uh, kind of a – it might have been an awkward situation, but I ended up going in to do – a session on Kenny G's very first record for Arista. All right, man. Jeff, hey, Jeff was producing 
And it was supposed to be Neil Steubenhaus, but he couldn't make the session and he asked me to sub for him. And I, I guess Jeff didn't realize that that was happening until I got there. But fortunately, the other musicians knew me and vouched for me. And uh, Jeff and I became friends. We did a bunch of sessions over the years. And then in two, I think it was 2009 or 2010, I went to Russia in a band that Eric Marenthal put together with Will Kennedy, myself, Chuck Loeb, right, uh, and Jeff Lorber. And Jeff and I really connected on that tour. It was, uh, um, I don't know, like a, a dozen dates or whatever it was. And uh, I was producing a saxophonist here in town who was originally from Sweden. And uh, I brought Jeff in on that project and we co-produced it. And that started this whole thing. And Jeff then decided to resurrect the fusion right, right. at that time. So right. yeah, he invited me to join the Jeff Lorber fusion. And we started, I've now produced uh, seven records with Jeff uh, for the fusion. Right. And the last one being what I mentioned before, the 11 record with, um, a collaboration with Mike Stern. Right, dig it, man. So there you go. Thanks for the thanks for the question, Anthony. Uh, I believe someone else also had a question about an early uh, kind of formative experience. Oh, Jeff, Jeff. Oh, long time friend of the magazine wants to know your experience in seeing Jimi Hendrix play at the Fillmore East and how it inspired you. Well, I was inspired by Jimi Hendrix well before I saw him at the Fillmore East, but. Uh, you know, especially uh, there was a cover band in my high school that was very good. Uh, they were they were excellent and they were inspiring. And they were they were older. I was like a sophomore. They were seniors, I guess. And they had a band called Moose Town Raid. And uh, they they I went to one of the gigs, um, and all of a sudden they said we we just found out about this new artist. And we learned a bunch of his tunes. And here's a tune right now. We're going to play Purple Haze. And I that blew my mind. Uh, <laughs> and I went out and bought the Jimi Hendrix record, Are You Experienced? And that record completely blew my mind. And I saw Hendrix five times live, one time at the Fillmore wow. uh, with uh, Buddy Miles. And um, that was... That was um, uh, incredible, you know, that was the band of gypsies right. with, with Billy Cox on bass. And, um, that was an incredible show, but I, I did see four other incredible shows. One at Randall's Island in New York. I was backstage, I snuck backstage and I stood behind Jimmy's three stacks of marshals and I heard him play, uh, a half dozen tunes there before they, the Ferrodis kicked me off. The <laughs> but wow. that, was, that was so that, close to the source. And that's when I realized that he played conventionally because before that I thought he played upside down. Oh, you thought he was one of you. I thought he was yeah. one of me, but I, and that didn't bum me out. I was completely <laughs> blown away. I realized, Oh wow. He, he restrung the guitar. So, I actually heard he wrote right-handed. <laughs> he just played left-handed. That's great. So I don't, you know, <laughs> Yeah, that's well, like being up close with the burning bush, man. That's incredible. Also, if I could put him in the same realm as Alan Hallsworth, he was also otherworldly. So yeah. um, that was 
it's still to this day an inspiration. I'll put on a Hendrix record. I actually got to co-produce uh, a Hendrix tribute. If anybody's interested, uh, it's a guitar player named uh, uh, Phil Brown. Okay. Record called the Jimmy Project, J I M I, and it's basically a trio with uh, Phil on guitar and vocals. Um, Gary Novak, I brought him in on drums, and I played bass. Sweet, man. We'll definitely check that out. Yeah. Um, you, you know, the 12, 13 albums in the work, all this great stuff on Blue Canoe, uh, the reissues of those classic albums. If people want to stay up to date on all this stuff, Jimmy, what's the best place for them to, you know, follow I, I along? Guess, um, I try to – I don't spend a lot of time on Facebook, but I try to um, – post things that I'm doing that are released there. So if you go to my Facebook page, I don't even know what the address is. <laughs> I guess uh, Jimmy Haslip. For Jimmy Haslip. Yeah, I think you can find me. It's, it's probably pretty easy. But if you go there and just scroll down, you'll see a, a pile of stuff that, I'm, that I've worked on and stuff that I'm working on. So I, I've dedicated the Facebook page primarily to work um things i'm doing and and it helps you know the artists that i'm working with on, on some level with the postings um so right on man that's well, it jimmy thank you so much for joining us this morning on the brunch this has been awesome it has been a pleasure talking with you um it's a pleasure to talk to you brian we will tag your facebook page after you know we've wrapped here so that people will know exactly where to go to follow along Thank you very much. And if I could, uh, one more shout out uh, to Scott Wilkie, uh, associate produced his latest record. It's called Brazil, and this beautiful Brazilian music on there. There's a lot of things we didn't talk about, but that's okay. We'll get you on <laughs> for another episode, man. I'd love to, anytime. All right, sounds and good. And please, uh, my wishes to all out there. Thank you all for listening, and thank you for supporting jazz music. and music it's our pleasure man jimmy i will see you backstage in the meantime i'm gonna say goodbye to the folks at home thanks again jimmy Here. bye bye all right what a treat getting to talk with jimmy haslip guy has played with everybody stories for days i love hearing them i don't know about you uh before we sign off i just want to quickly thank two more of our sponsors one being mac avenue records they have two amazing albums coming out soon uh connie hans iron starlet that's due out june 12th and christian sands b water it's going to be available uh july 17th not to mention they have a beautiful oscar peterson tribute out right now called oscar with love uh to learn more visit macavenue.com. thanks also to smoke sessions records uh, they've got a really nice album out right now by a very fine uh, tenor saxophonist named Wayne Escoffrey. It's called The Humble Warrior. Uh, they've also got some uh, concert footage of pianist Harold Mayburn, who passed away in 2019. It's Harold playing all of his own compositions. It's called Harold Play uh, Mayburn Plays Mayburn. That's available now, too. Uh, to learn more, visit smokesessionsrecords.com. All right. Uh, coming up this week on The Brunch, uh, well, we've got a lot of great things. Tomorrow, Boney James will be joining the uh, brunch. Uh, Wednesday, Rudresh Mahanthapa. He's an amazing alto saxophonist. He's 
uh, running the jazz program up at Princeton right now. Um, and he had a wonderful uh, tribute project to Charlie Parker a while back. And Charlie Parker, of course, is celebrating his centennial anniversary this year on Thursday, John Regan. And on Friday, we're going to wrap things up with Delphio Marsalis. And again, don't forget tonight, uh, join us again, 5 p.m. Eastern for Greg Field, producer of that Ella Fitzgerald project. Anyway, uh, we are offering a special right now. If you'd like to subscribe three months for just 99 cents per month, Plus, that enrolls you to, again, receive that summer 2020 fusion issue. So do it now. That's on our site. And independent artists, check out uh, our Inside Track program. This allows you to submit your albums, because I know you're out there working on albums, uh, directly to us Jazz's editors. Learn more. Just go to jazzes.com slash Inside Track. Thank you again for watching, everyone, to all the uh, medical workers, first responders, uh, grocery store workers, Truck drivers, essential workers, thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And artists, creative people, musicians, you're all essential too. And don't you forget it. Anyway, we'll see you again next time on The Brunch. So long, everyone. Bye-bye. <laughs>